today on Soundtrack Alley, you'll hear as I discuss in depth the film The Pelican Brief with Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington. You'll enjoy my discussion of the film itself, the background, and of course the score by James Horner. So sit back and relax as the show starts now. I'm your host, Randy Andrews. Yes, it's been a while. I've had some life changes go through my life. Um, For those of you that follow me regularly, you probably already know. So, you've been getting a backlog of Q Perception episodes lately, and I'm back with a new episode this week with The Pelican Brief. This film was a John Grisham novel originally, and it actually was interesting because John Grisham actually wanted uh, Julia Roberts to be Darby Shaw. And the cool thing about this film is that it was shot in sequence. So there was no scenes that were edited in later in the film. It was all put together in sequence, which is really fascinating and quite impressive actually for the scenes inside the white house um the sets were created for dave or the ones for dave the movie uh were used and the president questions uh cole's idea of addressing the nation while wearing a cardigan sweater and this is based on a real life incident in which jimmy carter addressed the nation in a cardigan sweater during the height of the fuel shortages in in the 1970s now john grisham also typically signs over the rights to the books and does not participate in film production decisions but for the pelican brief he campaigned to get Julia Roberts that part. And the direct Alan Pakula pulled a prank on the set uh, with Julia Roberts and Lyle Lovett. Uh, Roberts was filming a scene where she was supposed to talk on the phone with the character played by John Hurd, and Pakula sent Hurd's lines to Lovett, who was touring away from where the film was being made, allowing him to speak to his wife. And Roberts played the scene normally, though she didn't recognize the voice over the phone. It was only after Pakula yelled cut that she learned that it was Lovett's voice who was acting with her, which was really cool. Um, Darby Shaw and Greg Greg Grantham uh, became lovers in the source novel. 
Uh, although Julia Roberts was interested in b bringing the romance to the screen, Denzel Washington disagreed, and uh, he felt that the audience did not see the uh, interracial romance. And he had made virtuosity a couple of years later. Washington had a romance between his and Kelly Lynch's character cut from the script for similar reasons. And it's interesting that with these books that John Grisham writes and he has uh, things go to screen, um, he releases samples from the book. And so the movie rights were purchased on the spot. Now, also, Darby and Callahan discuss Bowers versus Hardwick, a real Supreme Court case that ultimately upheld the state right to make homosexuality activity illegal. Darby passionately argues that the Supreme Court was wrong, and in 2003, the Supreme Court ruled in Lawrence versus Texas that such laws were unconstitutional. Julie Roberts spent time at Julian Law School to prepare for her role and attended a class or two. Several of the students seen during the classroom scene are actual Tulane's law students from the class of 1994. And also, the fictional character of the FBI director F. Denton Voiles appears in almost or in a lot of John Grisham's book, books which involve the FBI. And to research his role as Greg Grantham, Denzel Washington spent time with the Washington Post editors and reporters. And this, I mean, that's just really, really cool. I love that. Uh, the law firm of White and Blanzevich is a parody of the Chicago-based Kirkland and Ellis, one of the oldest and wealthiest law firms in the world, with over $4 billion in revenue and 2,500 lawyers. A very prominent case they were involved in was the 60 Minutes Jeffrey Wingland Big Tobacco Corporations in the late 90s. Uh, they threatened litigation against the CBS corporate who caved and refused to air his interview implicating the CEOs of big tobacco companies and their knowledge that smoking was hazardous to one's health. Now, in the film, Voyle's greeting to Darby Shaw is, So you're the little lady that started this great brouhaha, and is likely an allusion to President Lincoln's famous apocryphal greeting to Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. So you're the little woman who wrote the book that made this great war. Although the Tulin Law School had moved to new buildings since the film, the room where Julia Roberts and Sam Shepard meet for class early in the movie is still a classroom. It's called the Jones Hall Room 102. And Julia Roberts, who won the Best Actress Oscar for Ju Aaron Brockovich, presented her co-star in this film, Denzel Washington, his Best Actor Oscar for Training Day the following year, which is cool. Um, in the book... The arch-villain, Victor Manis, is not seen in the film. 
In the book, he's described as an eccentric, wealthy businessman who made and lost several fortunes drilling for oil in the Gulf, and who made a sold percentage of the projected oil futures to associate in the Middle East. And, um, of course, in the book and in the movie, they change this around all the time, and it makes no difference. Uh, people don't chide people from having a switch of character uh, in the book or the movie. Um, but in the book, he was a white character, and in the movie, he's black. It doesn't really matter. Uh, almost every scene has something blue in it, especially the colors turquoise and teal. From Denzel's suit to a pen that Darby uses, which is teal. There's walls, cars, calendars, clothing. Um, it's really interesting. It's no way it's a coincidence. Sometimes it's very obvious and very subtle, like the end of the film where the police car pulls out of the airport hangar and the turquoise light reflects on the floor. It's never explained why it's used, but it's there. As Julia Roberts is left-handed, when Darby checks into a hotel in New Orleans, she signs her name left-handed. In Ocean's 12, Tess, pretending to be Roberts, signs an autograph right-handed, drawing the attention of Bruce Willis, who was confused by this, saying that Julia is left-handed. Willis himself also left-handed. Now, the painting next to Grantham's bed in his apartment is homage to Martin Luther King by French Expressionist painter Bernard Lojo, uh, Lorjo, excuse me. Across the bottom is written the phrase "Nonviolent protest is the most effective weapon of an oppressed people. I thought that was really cool. Um, the bomb that's placed in Grantham's car uses a mercury switch. This is made of a glass ampule that contains a pair of metal contacts and an amount of mercury. The switch is designed in such a way that when moved, the mercury touches both of the leads that thus completed the circuit in detonating the bomb. The thriller of the Pelican Brief, as we're getting into the score part of the show now, um, it touches upon all the categories with the story closely following Grisham's novel. And Julia Roberts, of course, is the law student. And in the film, Pakula's films have never been inclined to demand large-scale or thematically complex original music out of their composers. In this case, with a seemingly snug fit between Grisham and Pakula in place, the duties of the composer would fall upon James Horner whose popularity was nearing its height in the industry even though he was still branching out into several different projects that didn't reside in his normal realm of operation. With many similarities in construct and demeanor, the Pelican Brief would be the same score for Horner than Presumed Innocent or even a few years later of that of John Williams. Though both scores are introverted, uh, tense and piano-dominated works, Horner's ability to generate a similar sense of sophistication in its atmosphere falls uh, short of Williams' ability to do the same. In Presumed Innocent and The Pelican Brief, they utilize the same spirit of minimal ambient suspense. 
despite a more chase-oriented action tilt in the latter. And Williams' tackling of the job is leagues beyond Horner's music in quality and class. However, both composers are brilliant in their own respects. Playing once again on ideas that Horner had already established in other works, there's some structural and instrumental intrigue worth mentioning. Uh, the Pelican Brief could define it as a unique work or elevate it beyond its peers. That said, it contains enough moments of pleasant atmosphere and quiet melody to secure a place in many of Horner's collections. He has proven with Thunderheart and the Spitfire Grill, uh, which is uh, some of uh, the outstanding personality that can be expressed in his softer mode. And while the Pelican Brief has the same character-centered focus as Searching for Bobby Fischer and The Man Without a Face, it restrains its emotions to a far less dramatic level. Before diving into the faults of the music, uh, it should be praised for two cues specifically. Uh, one, Darby's theme and The Airport Goodbye. Uh, the Airport Goodbye presents a 10-minute suite, and it's just fabulous. Um, the former track is seemingly a concert arrangement, presenting the score four minutes not mixed into the final cut of the film, which is also interesting. The latter cue may grace the end credits with resolute theme thematic beauty, but the rest of the score is an exercise in Horner's usual suspense tactics, much like he used in the film Sneakers. The tapping percussion, including a light snare and consistent rhythms, leads the score from one uh, suspense cue to the next. When matters of importance occur, the crashing of chimes in similar fashion to the piano also raise many memories for Horner collectors. The light clicking and high-toned electronic choir over synthetic brass or bass and tingling, tingling keyboard rhythms, uh, such as the ambience of researching the brief uh, foreshadowed in the Spitfire Grill. And such music uh, makes for a very consistent listening experience. And some of the uh, crashing chase sequences are actually really brilliant in the film. They're placed really well, and it holds a unique place for me, especially with the knowledge of knowing that Sneakers was made um, a couple years later. And it's just, it's a wonderful film, and it's brilliant. It's just really well put together. So one of the main things I find about the Pelican Brief is the simplicity, and it really breaks down to a simple moment of music with quiet choir in the background of the main title, even with the woodblocks playing their simple repetitive motion. Um, I love the main title and how it really evokes a symbolism with nature. So for now, let's go ahead and play the main title.
The score has a melancholy sense about it. There are very few happy moments, but it reveals drama, intrigue, and suspense. Some parts of the score, critics have said, are very chaotic and jarring. But I think this is a brilliant way the music is displayed, especially with the hotel chase and the various chase scenes, such as the parking garage scene as well. Mainly, the hotel chase, for now, the piano and some rare sounds of metal are heard throughout the queue and remind you, much like sneakers. This moment is high intensity, and then you hear the brief chimes that create the deeper rush of emotion. It's very intense, and it has some high thrills. Uh, Horner really utilizes the wood blocks in this piece and some of the rare metal sounds in the music for the Hotel Chase. Let's listen carefully to Hotel Chase.
The next cue I'd like to focus on is planting the bomb. This is also high intensity as we know of Darby Shaw's paranoia. It also shows the sadness with Darby and what it means for her. Horner displays some excellent string writing and piano writing. It shows some high intensity with heavy beats. Here is Planting the Bomb.
The next to the last two cues I'd like to discuss is Darby's theme first. Her theme is very subtle, but it's very impressive. And this is the piece that could be a concert piece. And it builds and really wants you to appreciate who she is and what she's been through. I appreciate the chimes, the strings, and the low brass of the cue. Let's hear that now.
Sadly, we've come down to another end of Soundtrack Alley. I'd like to thank Alexander Shebel for composing the intro music. Find his work at xanderscores.com. Lastly, today, we'll play The Airport Goodbye, and it's a good way to end the show today, presenting the simple yet elegant close to Darby and Gray's relationship and how he fought to protect her. Thanks for listening, and check out my other podcast over on Cinematic Sound Radio. And until next time, take care and happy listening.
Thank you for listening to Soundtrack Alley. If you are an Apple podcast, please give the show a five-star rating. Check out the content over at SoundtrackAlley.com, as well as Cinematic Sound Radio, where most of my new material is posted. If you have a comment, question, or concern, please email me at SoundtrackAlley at gmail.com. 